Chapter 19 of Zara the Crow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zara the Crow by Joanne Conquest. Translated by Thoria. Chapter 19. Before the clouds appeared, the rain came upon me. Arabic proverb. Two months had passed in which Zara had absolutely failed to break our prisoner's indomitable spirit. Two months in which a passion for the white man and a hate for the white girl had grown deeper and fiercer. With the density of some women, she clung with an extraordinary and ridiculous tenacity to the belief that if she only treaded or cajoled enough and held a rival up plainly enough to ridicule or contempt, she would ultimately win Ralph Stretched's love. Also did fear urge her to force a casual him into becoming a husband. She knew at home men were blown like cutting threads before every passing gust of their facial emotions, and that there suddenly aroused a thread of Ralph Treachard had given place to genuine admiration. By that, she had come to realize she had no real hold over them and that, where they had obeyed her father, the scare he, through genuine love. They merely obeyed her because it pleased them so to do. She was just their nominal head. She pleased their sense of beauty, and they almost worshipped her for her courage and raids, but they were too well fed too sure of an unfailing supply of the necessities of life, too secure against intrusion and interference, to wish to relieve her of the reins of government with its attendant burdens. If they had formed one of the itinerant groups of Bedouins, which have to literally fight for their existence as they flee across the desert, she knew they would not have tolerated her for a day. True. They made no efforts to run counter to our orders and to ameliorate the white man's position. They considered the rough hut he lived in on the far side of the plateau and the rough food sent him quite good enough for any infidel. But they greeted him with friendly shouts when he arrived to teach them his tricks of cunning and did their best to beat him at his own game. If it had not been for his overwhelming anxiety for the future and for Ellen, whom he knew by essay, to be a very slave to the tyrannical Arabian, Ralph Trenchard would not have complained of his life or his treatment. True, he hated the half-caste, who did his best to humiliate him in the eyes of the men, and in a moment of forgetfulness in the early days, had forcibly rebelled against his constant espionage, and irritating presence. He had been instantly cured of the spirit of rebellion by the sight which, with a mocking laugh, the new event had pointed out to him of Helen, kneeling by the river, surrounded by jeering women, as she watched the Arabian's linen. And worse will happen, thou infidel, if thou durst disobey my mistress's commands. Muhammad, the prophet of Haller, decreed in his understanding that unto the faithful should be four wives given. Neither did he in his wisdom say aught against an infidel wife being of the four. Nay, 
In thy eyes I see the lost to kill. The life of the white woman pays for feed for my life. Thy life if the white woman essays to shorten the days of Zara the beautiful. For fear of something worse than death, befalling the beautiful splendid girl he loved, he dared do nothing. For every word, for every act of rebellion on his part, some task even more menial than those she daily performed would be forced upon her, for any attempt he might make upon the Nubian's life to assuage his own outraged feelings, a life would be taken, and there seemed no possible way out. Not only did the Nubian dog his footsteps, but Yusuf, upon whom he had counted in his heart of hearts, had filled him, and without his help nothing could be done. No communication with Ellen effected, no plans for escape made. He saw Yusuf every day, seated amongst the men, gathered to learn the heart of wrestling and jiu-jitsu. And of all the little crowd he seemed to be the only one who still cherished his hatred for the infidel. He spat with vigor when the white man passed, and at harder times shouted various abusive or rebelled remarks whilst urging his brethren to down the unbeliever in the test of strength and cunning, for the glory of Hala, the one and only God. His days were most humiliating, mapped out for him by the Nubian. There seemed to be no satisfying the man's craving to master the rudiments of wrestling. From two hours after sunrise until the first moment of the great noonday eat, they milled and boxed, with intervals of single stick and jiu-jitsu, in which they invariably forgot instructions, lost their self-control and temper, and almost broke each other's legs, arms, heads, or backs. The afternoons were passed in the heavy, unrefreshing sleep induced by great heat. From the moment the sun slipped down behind the topmost mountain peaks, throwing deep shadows across the plateau, they were had heat again, until the hour of the one big meal of the day, which takes place about two hours after sunset. The best part of the night they passed in gambling, storytelling, singing, or tearing over the desert on horseback, Ralph Trenchard accompanying them, invariably shadowed by the new band. To his intense relief, Zora left him entirely alone for the first month. Fully aware that he was surrounded by spies, he gave no sign of the rage which swept him each time he caught sign of Ellen following the Arabian, fanning her holding an umbrella over her, or descending the steps to the river with a great earthenware vessel on her shoulder, which she would fill for the tyrant's bath and carry up the steep steps to her dwelling. Zara had passed the month in trying to break Ellen's splendid spirit. Ignoring of the strength which real love gives to those who either through physical weakness or untoward circumstances are hurt the mercy of those moral cowards who take advantage of their distress or defenselessness. Cowards who, amongst the educated and the ignorant, the clergy, the laity, in the highest profession or in trade, place themselves morally on the level of the man who kicks his dog or hits his opponent when he is down. She made no impression on the English girl. Strong in her love, certain that her prayers for help would be answered, she endured all things. She waited on the Arabian end and foot, climbed the ladder to the golden cage, 
wearing zero lay during the siesta with coffee, sherbet, or whatever she desired, and descended and climbed again with ever the sweetest smile in her steady blue eyes. She brushed and combed the red curls until her hams ached, carried and fetched and read aloud, and looked after the birds, fanned the woman, fetched water from the river for a bath, watched the silking garments, and waited upon a muse without a murmur on her lips or a shadow in her eyes. She spoke to no one, but through the gossiping of the woman, learned that the body of the solid negress had not been discovered, and the Zara, owing to a certain spirit of insubordination that had lately swept through the camp, had not dared to punish the grooms of the kennels for their gross carelessness. She was continually surrounded by the woman, who, ignorant of the lies told them, jeered her and laughed at her and did everything in their power to make a task even yet more distasteful. When away from Zara, every movement was spied upon and reported. She slept in a hut in which tools had been stored during the alterations to the building, rough and infinitely uncomfortable, but a very haven of refuge at the end of the day when she returned to fling herself on her knees and pray for strength and patience. If only she had known it, Spies watched her at her prayers, noting the look of peace which followed quickly upon them, and the content with which she stretched herself upon the bed, composed of rugs flung upon the sad. Watched her asleep and at her toilet, and ran to make report on all things, especially upon the delight she seemed to take in combing a masses of beautiful hair, and in a bath in the river long before the dawn. I went a rough and shook Helen out of her sleep and ordered her to Zara's presence. It seemed that God had turned a deaf ear to our prayers, and that fear must, after all, dominate a splendid courage. It was long after midnight when, with a heavily beating heart, she entered the luxurious room. Two Abyssinian women, nude save for a short petticoat which stopped above the knees, stood behind the divan upon which Zara lay smoking a nagale. She lay and looked at Helen without a word, hating her for the ethereal look, which heightened her beauty and had come to her in a days of toil and privation. I am told, she said after a while in Arabic, that the hut you sleep in is not clean, that your habits are not the cleanly habit of the Mohammedan, that your hair has not escaped contamination from the disorder in your hearts. Therefore, when Helen interrupted her quickly, she looked back at the tittering black woman and laughed. How can you say such a thing? I am perfectly clean. My clothes are in holes through being washed on the stones. My hair to a hone undoing and yet, if she had not known it, as an answer to her prayers for her help, she undid the great golden plates and shook the rippling mats out over her shoulders, holding long strings at arm's length until even the negresses exclaimed at the glory of its shin. My hair has combed and brushed every day and washed once a week. It is perfectly clean. Zira laughed as she puffed at that hobble bubble, inhaling the fumes of the tobacco of Homan, which is calculated to absolutely stun the uninitiated in its compound of strength. Anyway, I do not like these tales of uncleanliness to be spread amongst my women. Ellen Rayner, she said cutly at last, 
I therefore have decided to keep you beneath my eyes. You will sleep in my room on a mat. You will be under the supervision of the slaver, who will now cut your hair off so that you are clean. I will kill her if she touches me, Ellen cried sharply, and girdling the glory of her hair round about her, ran to a table upon which lay an ornamented but most workmanlike dagger. She loved her glorious, naturally curling hair, looking upon it with a beautiful tit, as the greatest asset with which nature had endowed her. A lover loved it, and had often told her that she had ensnared his heart in its golden mesh. Forgetting her impossible position as prisoner and the utter futility of any effort at resistance, determined to fight for the glorious mantle which covered her to her knees, she picked up the dagger as the two gigantic women approached her. I will kill the first one of you who touches me. Zara laughed and raised her hand. Go and find Al-Hassad and bid him bind the white man and bring him here. Stop! Aline had thrown out her hands in surrender. Even her head would she willingly sacrifice in a great love. Everything she would sacrifice except her honor and that she knew was safe in a place abounding with deep precipices and paths where the foothold was precarious. Save for her tightly locked ends, she made no sign when the beautiful mass lay about her feet. In fact, with an almost superhuman effort of courage, she refrained from touching her shorn head and leant down instead and picked up a handful of hair, which looked like a great skein of golden silk. It's a pity to waste it, Zara, she said gently. Why not stuff a pillow with it? The Arabian bit hard on the hamper mouthpiece of Nagile. With her shot her curling around her face, Ellen looked like an exquisite girl of fifteen, defenseless, helpless, and calculated to inspire pity in the heart of almost any man. Call Namla, she lashed the Abyssinian across the tie when she had to repeat the harder. Heart dead of bereft of the use of thy limbs, thou fool, she screamed, seizing the darker from her mouth and throwing it after the rapidly retreating negress, missing her shoulder by an inch as she emulated the speed of the ostrich down the doorway. Namler, upon whom Ellen had counted in her heart of hearts, had failed her, and without her help, nothing could be done, no communication with Ralph effected, no plans for escape made. Of all the crowd of women who jeered and laughed at her, she seemed to be the one who cherished the greatest hatred for her. She spat with vigor when the white girl passed, and at other times shouted various abusive and ribald remarks, urging the woman to see that the unbeliever performed a menial tax thoroughly, so as to enhance the glory of Allah, the one and only God. She ran in and prostrated herself before her dread mistress, then pulled the masses of hair roughly from under Ellen's feet and tossed it this way and that, as though it were the hair of goat or camel. A kerchief for that head, O oh great mistress, could I weave, or a plaited girdle set with pearls, though to a well-nigh sacrilege for the middle of the believer to be bound by the hair of the infidel. Behold, the infidel looks even like the skull of one dead. With a face like unbaked bread and a head like unto the wing of the ostrich plucked off its feathers. 
With instructions to make what she could of the silky bird in which filled both her hands, she spat or, rather for fear of her mistress's humor, made the sound of vigorous spitting in Ellen's direction and vanished through the doorway. Ellen lay on the floor that night, a beautiful shone head resting on her arm and poured out her heart in gratitude that Zira had not seen fit to shave it completely. What is in the cauldron is taken out with the kitchen spoon, Arabic proverb. A thousand raps at the door, but no salute or invitation from within, Arabic proverb. During the night, in the passing of a second, for no apparent reason and with all Arabs' lamentable instability, Zara grew suddenly tired of baiting a prisoner, and with the extraordinary density of the woman in love, decided to make one last endeavor to break down Ralph's treacherous resistance. She could not understand, and she would never be able to get it into a mind narrowed by self-love, that one might as well try to stem the Niagara Falls with straw or hold a must elephant on a daisy chain as to influence the invisible love of soulmate. She decided she would offer Ralph Trenchard Ellen's liberty. She would offer to give up a mountain home, a freedom, a power. She would offer herself as a servant, his slave, to cook for him, to wait upon him, anything to keep him by her side, no matter if he returned a love or not, as long as he lived near her. And if that failed, as a last resource would use the despicable lever of the lowest type of coward. To gain her hand, she would threaten to commit suicide. So the night following the cutting of Helen's hair, which was also the night preceding a tournament, in which the men were to show how much they had learned of the art of pugilism, she uttered herself in great splendor and summoned Ralph Trenchard to her presence. Helen, surrounded by women who gossiped, knelt at the river hedge, rubbing silken garments on a stone with Snamler mocking and jeering beside her when the Abyssinian sent to fetch Ralph Trenchard, shouted at Heron as she passed. Helen shrank back when Namla suddenly sprang at her and wrenched the silken garment from her hand. Thou fool, Namla shrilled as she knelt. This wise, and this and this, the soap? How hast thou eaten it in thy imbecility? She went across Ellen and snatched at the soap, which slid into the water, then wrung the garment as though it were the neck of an offending hen, as she whispered, Give me a message for the white man. Zara offers him thy freedom for his love. Down came the garment on the stone, as though she essayed to soften the tough carcass of some female Methuselah of the poultry world as she screamed at the top of her voice. Will thou never learn? Did Hala in his wisdom not teach thee even how to wash a garment? Take it and try, lest I smite thee with it. She flung the silken remnant at Helen, who, eyes alight, cut it in both ends and crashed it on the rocks until one half followed the soap into the water. Whereupon Namla leant across her and gripped her wrist. Fool! This wise! And this and this. The women crowded round to watch Namla swinging Ellen's arms like flails. Tell him, whispered Ellen as she beat her best, that 
Nay, Namla, thou tearest out my arms. Behold, I can do no more. She fell forward with a woman underneath and in confusion whispered a message. Tell him I prefer that to my freedom at such a price and shrank back for the benefit of the onlookers. When Namla, flinging all that was left of the washing item in her face, ran off with much cursing up to the path to where Yusuf waited in the shadows. And hope sprang up in Ralph Trenchard's heart as he climbed the steps in answer to Sarah's summons, followed by the Nubian at some distance. Suddenly, and with a most amazing clumsiness, Yusuf walked out from behind the great boulder straight into his arms. Sorry, said Trenchard shortly, as he tried to free himself from the grasp of the infuriated Arab. You came out so... As no threat for others, shouted Yusuf at the top of his voice. Thine ear, he whispered, whilst he shook Ralph Trenchard violently. Zara will offer thee thy white woman's freedom for thy love. The white woman prefers death to freedom without thee. She loves thee. Nay, he suddenly yelled, wouldn't push a blind man to his death. The two seemed locked in anger as Owl Assad raced up the path. A message, he whispered. Shake me in anger. Give me a message for thy woman. Give me a message. The Nubian was close upon them. Trenchard grasped the blind man and shook him. Tell her to stand fast and to fear nothing, he whispered. They shouted angrily. How can I hear thy noiseless feet on thee? He reeled as Yusuf awed him backwards and continued to climb the steps, whilst the blind man filled the night her with curses. Zara was quite alone. The Nubian, Hondo Hodders, sat down upon the steps to await development. He was well content to wait. He had gogged the white man's strength of resistance and had no fear that it would become entangled in the beautiful Arabian's walls. He smiled as he crept as noiselessly as a great cat to the platform before the door and stretched himself flat upon it, the blackest spot in the black shadows, to listen to the woman he loved pleading for the love of one who loved another. Lost to all sense of shame, as are those women who have not learned the meaning of self-control and self-sacrifice. Zara pleaded with Ralph Trenchard for his continued presence by her side, pleaded for his company and his comradeship so that she might enjoy the shadow of his great good looks and actual presence while skipping the substance of his love from her rival. She had made the greatest mistake in her toilet. None too overdressed at the best of times, she had a startlingly undressed appearance as she stood like a beautiful exotic flower beside the Englishman. She had not, how could she in the name of decency, discarded a single garment but had donned the most transparent outfit in her wardrobe. Her feet were bare and jeweled, as were her hands, her hands, her waist. The trousers, worn by most Arabian women, were voluminous in their transparent folds. Her body shone through a jeweled vest, which fitted her like a skin. Trenchard looked at her from head to foot, and with the perceiveness of the human mind, immediately thought of the picture Ellen had made as she stood beside her grandfather in the desperate battle. 
and he backed the pace before the Arabian semi-nudity. Will's Nubian buried his face in his hand to stifle his cry of longing. I love thee, Zara was saying softly, looking up at the man she loved with love-filled eyes. I love thee, Ralph Trenchard. I have loved thee ever since I lay against that heart so many, many moons ago. I will give up my home, my people. I will name out Assad as ruler in my stead. I will follow thee upon the path of thy choice, to the country that should please thee. I will wait upon thee, serve thee, devote myself to thee, if thou would give up the other woman. I love thee. I have already told you, Zara, that I do not love you, could never love you. Ralph Trenchard, loathing the sin, spoke curtly and stepped back quickly as Zara flung herself at his feet. Do get up, he added in English as he tried to loosen a grasp upon his knees. If only you knew how we English loathe scenes like this and what we think of hysterical, unbalanced people. She sat back on her heels, lifting her hands in supplication. I offer you Ellen Rayner's freedom if you will stay with me. I do not want to keep her. Let her go back to her own country. She is young. She will forget. She does not know what love is. Besides, I fear my slave. He is handsome. He too is young. He wishes to take a wife. I will send Alina safely away from him. If you will stay with me. Trenchard showed no sign of the horror of the fate in store for Ellen. He spoke quite calmly, slowly, almost indifferently. You will not gain anything if you hurt Ellen. If she dies, I die. If you try to harm her, she will find a means of killing herself, and I shall kill myself. Not because of my love for her. Our kind of love is higher than suicide. It endures but only so that you shall find no pleasure in her death. He pulled her hands apart and stepped back as she sprang to her feet. She failed to understand that, living or dead, she was no more to the man than one of the beds in his cage and played what she mistakenly believed to be a trump card. Then I will kill myself, Ralph Trenchard. She choked with rage. The horrors in the English words rolling like little drums and you will never forget that upon your head will lie the death of a woman never be able to wipe out the picture of my broken body lying amongst the rocks she ran close up to him shaking with the unseemly rage of the uncontrolled woman i go to my death she pointed through the doorway striking a most dramatic attitude whilst watching for a sign of interest in her proceedings in the man's indifferent face. To my death, she screamed as she saw none and fled through the doorway, missing the outstanding Nubian by an inch. She stopped upon the edge of the very steep incline and listened for the sound of footsteps hastening to her rescue. At the absence of all sound, she looked over her shoulder to see Ralph Trenchard, with his back to her lighting a cigarette. She tore back into the room with the last shred of her restrained gun and swung him round the arm. Oh, you didn't do it? He looked us straight in the eyes. We have women like you in England, never very young or very pretty. 
pool verging upon the sea and yellow, and with nothing to fill their days or occupy their minds, try to coerce the people they love by threat of suicide. They never get what they want either. The slightest chain frets love, real love, you know. You can't aspire love just because you keep the person you love, but who doesn't love you in the same house with you? You can't hold love by cooking or serving. Love, real love, will thrive on a crust offered by the one loved, but will seeking at the sight of a basket of sweetmeats offered by anyone else. He had no intention of giving her the slightest cause to owe by offering her any sympathy in her tantrums. He had it coldly, cruelly as he turned from her. It's rather a pity. The silly, hysterical woman don't carry out their threat of suicide. The world would be no loser by their death. He backed before her as she burst into a torment of reproach, which ended in a storm of abuse. Go! She screamed at the highest pitch of the Arabian voice, which is none too sweet in wrath. Tomorrow at the tournament, I will decide what is best to be done with this white woman, who is not fit to mingle with my woman and children. Yea, even owing to her dislike of water, have we cut her hair so that... She screamed and struck at Ralph Trenchard as he caught her by the wrist and pulled her roughly to him. What did you say? You've cut off Ellen's hair? All that wonderful golden mass. You have dared to do that. Speak, can't you? He flung her on the divan as she laughed and clapped her hands at the side of his horror-stricken face. I laughed again at the plan for revenge which flashed into her mind. So, I have prevailed in making you feel, Ralph Trenchard. She shouted after him as he left the room and ran down the steps, followed by the amazed Nubian. She ran to the door and laughed until the mountains echoed and re-echoed to the sound, then turned and flung herself on the floor, where she gave way to the violent hysterics of the uncontrolled jealous women. End of chapter 19